morning. You're listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. Today, we have the privilege of spending time with Kate Bischoff, who is the world's meanest employment lawyer. And that's quite something because she heralds from Minneapolis, where nobody's allowed to be mean. (laughs) Right. We're not allowed to be mean. We're nice all the time. That's right. Everybody in Minneapolis is nice all the time. So, Kate, how are you this morning? I am very well. How are you? I'm I'm great. You know, one of the things I want to be sure to 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 mention is we've got sponsorship from a company called YouBenefitEd.com, which does uh, student loan repayment programs, and and we'll have an ad from them in the middle. But I'm real excited that they're sponsoring these conversations. And so, with that, would you take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. I am not your typical employment attorney. In the middle of my employment attorney career, I joined the U.S. Department of State and became the HR officer for the Consulate General in Jerusalem and the U.S. Embassy in Zambia, which gave me some HR street head. So when I came back to the U.S. after my gallivant overseas, I came back to employment law with a different perspective of in part just how hard it is to be in HR, but also a lens at what can we do to make these employment law decisions easier to understand and easier to comprehend, and then make sure that we can make practical decisions based upon what the law is requiring us to do. So with that, about a third of what I do these days is training on respectful workplace trainings, FMLA, ADA, what does, how does technology impact our work? And another third is writing policies and procedures about those kinds of things. Like if we're going to be purchasing a new piece of technology, what do we want in our contracts and how are we going to use the technology? And then the last third is when an organization thinks they have a problem, whether there has been a complaint of harassment or workplace bullying, or they think they have uh, some misdeeds going on, they have me come in and do some research and interviews of their folks to figure out how we can make things better. So that's what I get to do every day. So when I hear about employment lawyers, I always think, oh, man, these are the people who spoil the party. And, and 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 through through much of my career, although it's changed in recent years, through much of my career, I avoided people who did employment law like the plague because they always told me no, and I, I don't really like hearing that word. Uh, um, I don't like saying that word. So I come to employment law with the idea that compliance doesn't always mean no, that we can be very creative in how we cre- make a practical solution along with compliance with the law. So if a client calls me and says, can I fire the only African-American woman I have who's also in a wheelchair? The answer is going to be, yes, you can. But what kind of safeguards are we going to go through first before we make that decision? Or are we going to attempt to get a release of some sort? So there's a lot of things in there that we can be creative. And the Best employment lawyers I know are incredibly creative. So, so while you do all this basic uh, blocking and tackling employment law stuff to pay the rent, you're also um, 
one of the great advocates for intelligence and artificial intelligence. You know, bias questions and other risk questions associated with AI is what I really want to talk to you about there and how they impact employment law is the the fun part of this conversation. Okay, great. Okay, so so how did you um how did you get started thinking about AI? Well, probably about five years ago, there big data was just starting to emerge as this really, really cool thing that everybody should be doing, even though very few were actually doing it. And I looked at it like, well, this sounds really, really cool. But if we're using data to make decisions, what does our data look like? And so I started having some mental gymnastics in my brain about what the data could be and what kind of decisions we could make on that data. And I kept running into employment law roadblocks where there should be concerns about using these certain pieces. And so I started asking questions about it, trying to find some analogies and parallels to what the law, or how the law will look at these things. And I found lots of them. And so I started talking about them more and more often. And to those people who were not necessarily skeptical, but at least open to hearing some criticism of the big, fancy, shiny new toy, uh, they started listening. And so I started talking to tech companies and to my clients about, well, when you're going to use this new thing, we should talk about how to do it meaningfully and carefully so that we don't make decisions that we inadvertently didn't want to make. Well, you've done so, you've done some amazing stuff. So let's let's just try to pick through the um, to the pepper to find the little nuggets here. Um, okay. You you have um, an extraordinary set of of notions about bias in AI. Um, okay. So maybe, maybe the best maybe the best way to to start to start that conversation is I don't think it's possible to remove bias from AI. I I think that's a kind of a nonsense idea. What do you think? I I agree with you. I think we've bias gets into artificial intelligence in so many different ways that there's no way that we can pull it out. And so to take a a statement from Alcoholics Anonymous, self-awareness is the first step to recovery for AI is that we have to understand that our AI is biased and then figure out how do we mitigate the use of that bias or do we change how we've operated in the past or how the AI operates so that we can reduce the impact of it. One of the things that, that, that I think about of, uh, more than I ought to probably is, is that bias is the essence of what AI is. AI. Mm-hmm is a tool that helps you distinguish between this and that. And yeah. distinguishing between this and that is the first expression of bias. Yeah. Um, right. And, and, so, and so, so part of, part of the problem is we confuse bias, which has five or six really interesting definitions, um, with a very specific employment law case of bias. Right. And, and and the very specific employment law case of bias is there are 
classes of people um, that it's illegal to discriminate against. And, and that's really what companies mean when they say that AI can do something like eliminate bias. That's what they're trying to talk about. But it gets confusing because that term is, is a kind of an elastic idea. And I agree. I think what or how vendors are selling AI is not necessarily how they are actually applying the AI. So saying that they can reduce bias, there, there's a couple of different ways that that can be taken. Is it that they're using your historical data? And so it's just data. It doesn't actually have intent to create discrimination. So it's that's the it's just math. So it's reducing bias, which is a complete fallacy because your historical data already has bias in it because we humans created it. So by virtue of the humanness of it, we've created the bias. And then the other piece of it is that they're actually thinking carefully about what that bias could be and then trying to mitigate it. I mean, we've heard recently about Amazon's experience in creating a recruiting tool with and then discarding the tool because it couldn't figure out how not to harm women because of the, the tool's innate use and how it found data and how it found proxies for gender. And so there's these two different, you know, some vendors who are actually talking about it effectively and mitigating it, things like Textio, who is eliminating bias by eliminating different markers for race and gender and age. And then there's the ones who are saying, well, it's just math, so it never happens. So it's hard to parse that as a consumer in the AI space, um, but we're kind of stuck in those two places. Yeah, well, you, you know, I think when, when I think about Textio, I don't, I don't see a company that eliminates bias. I see a company that channels it, right? And so, so, so if you don't know about Textio, Textio... Um, um, helps you improve the quality of your writing to get a result that's closer to the result that you intend. That's that's really that's really the textio game. And so, if what you intend is to have a broader um, pool of candidates for hire um, that is more evenly distributed amongst different kinds of protected classes. Textio can help you write the job ad in a way that uh, is statistically more likely to produce the right distribution of candidates in your in your talent pool or pipeline. Um, that's not the eradication of bias. That is the um, sort of channeling and mitigation of bias. Yeah, and uh, I, th I think though that be because Textio starts with the premise that there is bias it then tries to mitigate that bias. I don't think it's eliminating it, but I think you're right that it is, it is recognizing it and then trying to make things better, not eliminate it entirely, but making it better is important. So, so what do you think about the, the ostrich putting its head in the sand approach to um, uh, bias reduction? You know, the, if, I can't, if I can't see that you're a woman, um, then, then I didn't discriminate against you. 
kind of thing. Um, that, that seems to be pretty popular in AI circles these days. It absolutely is. But there, are, the law prescribes two different kinds of discrimination. One is that I intend to discriminate against you. And the other is that it has the, perp- that it has the effect of discrimination. And both forms, whether it's disparate treatment with the intent or disparate impact, which is the result, both of them are unlawful. And so putting your head in the sand is not necessarily going to release you from liability because I don't know or ignorance has never been a defense to the law. Right. And and it is now the case that there's evidence that you can know. Right. And yeah. so and so and so th- that that approach, which was, I think, quite a quite common recommendation of employment attorneys between 1965 and maybe 2000. Um, don't look, and if you don't know, then you you can't be in trouble. Um, it's changing now because because the data flows make it impossible to ignore the reality. I, that is true, and there there is kind of a you should have known theory out there that if you, let's say, for example, you were collecting information about what you're, you're monitoring email, let's say, and somebody is looking at all of the emails, your tool is looking at all the emails to find out who is your biggest flight risk or who should you fire or who should be promoted when you're gathering all of that data. If in the emails, there is my supervisor continually grabs my breasts every day, well, you have a tool that's looking all of it at it. And then if your tool didn't flag that particular email, then you should have known that this was happening because you do happen to monitor emails. And so that kind of you should have known is starting to break through a little bit. And at least for some of my buddies who hang out in this space, that should have known standard is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. That's that's what I hear too. I'm going to to take a momentary break here and remind people what we're doing. I'll be right back. You're listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. Benefit Ed helps your workforce get the most out of your employer match program. Employee choice, offered exclusively by Benefit Ed, enables employees to decide if they want their employer match contributions to be allocated to student loan repayment, retirement, or both. Increase plan participation and offer an innovative benefit without a drastic increase to overall benefit spend. Compete for the best and build your dream team. Learn more at youbenefited.com slash HRX. That's Y-O-U-Benefit-E-D.com slash HRX. Thanks so much, you Benefit Ed. We are glad that you're sponsoring us. So back to you, Kate. What's, what's the worst thing that you see out in the AI hype? The worst thing? Uh the worst thing is that when AI doesn't take into account all the different protected classes, and for me, the worst thing out there is when AI is using natural language processing and or facial expressions, because the things that come to mind in those are individuals where English is not their first language or individuals who may have disabilities that are apparent by their facial features including individuals who are blind or who have uh, uh, some sort of palsy, whether it's Bell's palsy and half of your face is, is paralyzed. I get so angry when I talk about those things because 
there is a big portion of our population out there who are incredibly effective at their jobs. But if AI is looking at word complexity and word choice or the facial expressions, we're missing out on large chunks of people. So it makes me angry. So, so do you think that's a, um, a permanent flaw in the idea that a machine can make um, coherent judgments about people? Or is it just, you know, a billion transactions away from having enough data? I, I think it's kind of probably both. I don't know if people are prioritizing it for the first part. I mean, for word complexity and word choice, we have gotten ourselves stuck in this idea that those are really good indicators of intelligence. And then for the facial features, somebody who has a disability that is readily apparent on their face, they're their lower priority for organizations that are using AI or they're developing AI because they believe that those populations are so small. However, though that's where a great deal of liability could exist in part because those populations are so small. Oh, that's interesting. So, so, so it's your experience that companies perceive relative size of the population of a particular affected class as the primary measure of risk. Yeah, well, I think that's a would be a safe assumption to make that or to make that evaluation. I mean, it's not often that you're going to find someone with Bell's palsy applying for your job. So if that's a relatively remote possibility, then we could use the tool and then just hope that nobody ever applies. Or if somebody does apply, we have to make leaps and bounds and try to figure that out before we stick a tool on them that rates them significantly lower. How interesting. So what else drives you crazy that you see out there? That it's just math defense, <laughs> that, it, that we can't possibly be discriminating because we don't put any protected class information into our tool so that we won't ever, you know, that can't happen. It frustrates me when organizations think that just by removing protected class information that they are removing the potential for discrimination. If I were to look at having protected class information, I'd want to have that information in my tool so that I could actually measure against it. And for a lot of my HR tech companies, I advise them to keep that information in the tool so that we can see if there is an impact on these protected classes. What kind of response do you get when you say that? They're like, really? We should do that? And I say, well, how else are we going to measure it? <laughs> how else are we going to figure out if there actually is an impact unless the data is in there? What we need to be able to do, though, is when we look at what the factors or what the actual algorithm is spitting out or the AI is spitting out, is there a way to dial back certain things like dial back the impact of protected class status, dial back the impact of someone taking time off? Um, and if we're able to do that, then we can reduce the risk overall of using the tool. If we don't, and there are things in there that are proxies for those two items, like productivity or sales numbers or goals, then we are going to have an impact. It's just going to take us longer to figure it out. So, so generally speaking, I stay away from lawyers because they always tell me that the lawyer's job seems to be to tell me no. 
Um, cases, yes. Um, and 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 so so, what are you excited about in AI? Now we've we've now we've heard the the beginnings, the official employment lawyer stance, which is no, no, no. Where's the yes, yes, yes? I think if you include us earlier in the process of developing the tools, I think we can be more effective and create even better tools for you. And I think we're starting to see that. For some of my clients, they're very interested in this idea. Um, and they're hiring in-house attorneys. They're hiring in-house compliance folks so that these that we can start raising these flags earlier. Then when we start rolling out the tools, we will have addressed some of the mitigation. We can never get to 100% bias-free, perfect tool. But if we can articulate what we've done to try to mitigate the bias and mitigate those effects, I think we create a better tool. And so I think on as a whole, we're starting to see more attorneys be and compliance experts be rolled in earlier so that we can create better and better things. And that's, well, that's, that's interesting. So um, next question is employment lawyers have a great capacity to identify, right? The job is, the job is what's legal and what's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are troubling things beyond what's legal and what's not about AI. What do you see there? The troubling things? Yeah. Like, well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, if you apply machine learning to resume databases in order to find candidates who fit in the job, mm-hmm. what, what happens is as the machine is given reward for successfully identifying something, the constraints become narrower and narrower. Right. 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 Exactly what machine learning does is narrow the constraints so you get a more repeatable output. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is um, jobs are exactly not narrow sets of constraints. Right. And so, and so there's this tendency of, of machine learning driven tools to run towards mediocrity. <laughs> I, I 100% agree with you. I think that we have to remember that AI is a tool in our toolbox to be used. And as it's, you know, as we promote, we reward it in the fact that you made a good decision. See, we actually hired this person or see this person actually was doing what you suspected it was doing. We have, toddlers essentially saying, good job, you did this. And so they want to repeat that behavior to get more and more of that reward, right? That's how AI essentially operates. I think what we are going to see is in this growth stage, we understand that we still have to step in and do a lot of the basic self-care for toddlers in our AI. We need to make sure that we are looking outside of our historical data to find who is going to be the best candidate. We look for things like diversity. We look for things like diversity of thought. We look for neurological diversity. And those things are going to be hard for our our AI toddlers to understand. But as we keep stepping outside of the AI box, uh, I think we can help our AI grow and mature and understand that there are lots of different avenues. And maybe that broadens its perspective and, and its results, which 
kind of defeats a little bit of the purpose of the selection that it's helping us do. But I think overall, as long as we understand that what AI is telling us is a snapshot in time about what it thinks based upon our history is the best thing that if we understand that piece, we can look outside of its parameters more frequently. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Last night, last night I went to an extraordinary lecture. I, I, do, I do that once or twice a month. And this lecture was by a guy who was talking about the um, undeclared war between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. I thought it was declared, what, but okay. Yeah, well... <laughs> What what he was saying is that is that the reason that Silicon Valley has become so powerful is there's no such thing as software li- software product liability. Oh yeah, um, and, and that means that Silicon Valley is never accountable for the consequences of its work. So so in AI, the question here is in AI, do you imagine product liability becoming part of the landscape? Oh God, I certainly hope so. Uh Right now, under federal law, if I use a tool that creates discrimination by the result, not by necessarily by the intent, if you look at personality assessments historically, when a personality assessment says that it, you don't want to hire African-Americans, you get sued for that and you spend a lot of money. And because you're the employer. Well, if you're the employer and you hire an HR tech vendor with AI and the HR tech vendors tool helps you create discrimination. There's no real good mechanism for you to go back to the vendor to say, you're the one who created the liability. You should be the one on the hook. And in part that exists because we want HR tech vendors to grow and succeed. And they, in their contracts, put things in like you will indemnify us, but there is not, there's not a good way to hold them accountable other than with your feeds and with your purchasing power. The law in certain states, like for example, in the great state of Minnesota, where I live, we have an aiding and abetting part of our discrimination statute, where if you aid and abet the discrimination, it, their potential is that the HR tech vendor then could be liable for aiding and abetting the discrimination. So there's potential that those pieces of legislation could be used to hold HR tech vendors accountable for their tools. But ultimately, the employment decisions rest still with the employer, regardless of the tools that they're using. If there was software product liability, we could go back to those vendors and say, your tool caused all of this harm. You should be responsible for it. And I don't foresee that coming first from employment. I see that coming first from uh, the criminal and, and law enforcement. I see that where um, it's Amazon's tool that can't identify African-Americans correctly or can't classify African-Americans correctly, or the tools that say this person is more likely to be a recidivist because they are African-American. And so I see product liability, hopefully, knock on wood, apply to those tools first and then trickle its way down to employment law. Because we have to remember that if HR is 10 years behind where technology is, the law is like a century behind. And so it's going to take us a while to get up to this. But I foresee that there 
there being some kind of legislation, even this year, because we now have a Congress that at least has grown up a little bit with technology, so they understand it better. I foresee that we see some bills about that, but I don't think we'll get any action on it for at least three years, if not longer. So I wonder in, in, in the um, uh, product liability area, if you've got an AI and the AI is selecting resumes for you and you're making choices about who to hire based on those, on those selected resumes, and it turns out that you're hiring people who are bad for your business. Not discrimination, but but the business results can be directly correlated to the hiring decisions that you're making based on the um, recommendations of the machine. That's the kind. That's the kind of big ticket liability that that has my attention here. That there's that there's an employment law corollary there. That that is um, this product which helps us do employment. Um, is the cause of the problems in the company. Well, you just said that magic word. I think the problem will be proving causation, that the, that this hire, this tool's recommendation that we hire this individual caused this damage. And it goes back to this really, really old case called Paul's graph. It involved a train and, and coal and something falling off the roof and hurting this woman, that we have to actually have what's what's known as a foreseeable cause that that is a reasonably foreseeable cause. And so that might be difficult for employers to prove back. So, but where discrimination is going to be easier to prove that because this is the tool that made the recommendation and we followed that recommendation. The harm to the business, that's a proximate cause problem. And I think that it's going to need to be articulated by a court, maybe, or in the legislation itself. And so that's going to be difficult to actually show the, the evidence that this hire caused this, this damage. And it wasn't that you didn't train the employee correctly or you didn't provide them the necessary tools to succeed. So it's going to be one of those kinds of things. There's going to be lots of questions about causation, I should say. Well, that's 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 right. There is good in order for AI to really work, it has to address causation, and so there's great work going on um, um, in statistics uh, to be able to show system level kinds of causation. Um, so I think I think that's a math problem. Right? That's just a math problem. Yeah, but I I but math problems. Trying to explain those to twelve people are difficult. There, I think there's going to have to be kind of a, a smell test that twelve people off the street are going to be having to make the decision, and that the math itself isn't necessarily going to be helpful. Because if I let's say I hire someone who turns out to be a chronic sexual harasser that gets my business and huge amount of news, and I cause a bunch of liability that way, you know, while this the tool said I should hire this person. I gave them training that was also ineffective. I also had a policy that they they said they read, but they didn't actually read. Nobody reported when the first low level harassment happened. So there's lots of different factors in that in that chain that doesn't necessarily go back to the tool. The same thing could be true if I hire someone for even a, to be a great 
statistician and they don't, they tool said you should hire them, but they didn't actually have the right tools or they didn't actually have the right knowledge to be a great statistician. Well, is it because they didn't know how we did it or we didn't have the tools that they were used to using? So there's a, there's a bunch of factors in that causation analysis that will be hard, I think, to start with. Well, we're going to get a chance to see. This has been a great conversation, Kate. Um, uh, is there anything that you'd like a listener to take away? I think the most important thing as we continue to talk about AI is that we have to ask more questions. We have to ask our vendors more questions and expect that they're going to be able to answer them. Like, how are you mitigating the potential for discrimination or other problems in the AI and having them give you articulate answers back, I think is the most important thing as this tool continues to take off. Fantastic. So please take a moment, reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you. So I'm Kate Bischoff. I have my own business called Thrive Law Consulting. You can find me on the line at thrivelawconsulting.com. And I'm kind of everywhere. I'm on the Twitters. I'm on LinkedIn. So it shouldn't be too hard to find. Thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Kate. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Let's do it again soon. We need to chase down some of these questions we talked about today. Yes. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. We've been talking with Kate Bischoff, who is the most knowledgeable AI-oriented employment lawyer in the United States. And um, it's been a real privilege, Kate. Thanks again, and thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you listening. We'll see you back here same time next week. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.